0: Lord, it's a blessing to come to you this morning. It's a blessing to open your word. Oh, God, as believers, what better thing could we be doing than spending time in your word, studying your word, thinking through how to apply it to our lives and live godly, holy lives and be godly, holy Christians before you in this world. Thank you for giving us this book and Lord, teach us this morning in the name of our Blessed Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, it is a real privilege to come to you this morning and open the Word. So, you know, they gave me two verses. I guess Wade figured I could handle two verses. So we just got two verses this morning. We're in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. And let me read those to you, and then we'll start diving into this great message from the Apostle Peter. Beloved. I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. So you know, we've been studying this book for a number of weeks now, but Do you ever reflect on the life of the Apostle who wrote this letter? Peter, Peter of the Gospels and the Acts. Peter's a big figure, isn't he, in the Gospels and among the disciples and also in the book of Acts. I say he's the big fisherman, right? He's, In fact, though, he is the big fisherman who our Lord called off the boats to follow him. Peter, in fact was very acquainted with being a citizen of this world before he came to be a citizen of God's kingdom. Peter also knew great failure, didn't he? In his denial, particularly of our Lord, but Peter also knew the tenderness of our Lord in bringing him back into the fold. Perhaps that's why, as we're going to see this morning, Peter is so tender with the readers of this letter in his exhortations to them about holiness. So let's consider the theme of these verses, and then we're going to dive into them. So I have it here on your handout. Everybody, if you have, don't have a handout, there in the back, and I'm going to try to follow the outline pretty closely so you won't get lost. But the main theme, and this is how I see these verses, believers are citizens of God's kingdom, aliens in this world who are called to sin-killing holiness that will be seen by... Sin blinded unbelievers to the end that they might know God and give him glory. That is that the unbelievers might know God and give him glory. So these verses we're going to study this morning, verses 11 and 12, I think are a powerful summary of who we are as believers in Christ, called as God's holy chosen people, citizens of his kingdom, sojourners and pilgrims on this earth, These verses that we're going to study this morning tie together the first part of chapter two, which Chris covered so well last week, where Peter describes believers as being built into a spiritual house and a holy priesthood with Christ as the chief cornerstone. These verses also lay the foundation for Peter's call to militant personal holiness, lived out in every public aspect of our lives before the watching world. At the end of chapter 2, Peter's going to flesh all of this out. So these verses, verses 11 and 12, really tie together very nicely the first 10 verses of chapter 2, and then as Peter goes into his very specific exhortations, um, Peter will remind us that citizens of God's kingdom must abstain from participating in the sinful fleshly desires that characterize the worldly kingdom to which we were once part of, we were enslaved, and when we walked according to the prince of the power of the air, and we were, we were sons of disobedience. Though we are now set free from bondage to sin and the old man, these fleshly desires are always at war against us, tempting us to walk in the old ways of the flesh. Peter pleads with us to abstain from these temptations and pursue holiness. In our public living in the world, our godly living will be a refutation of the slanderous accusations of the world to the end that the world may glorify God because of what they see in our lives. So this is a very powerful two verses that we have to go over this morning and very practical for our lives as Christians. So we're going to break this these two verses up into three sections. The first section I'm going to call the premise That is, Peter's going to teach us right off the bat, remind us who we are, and we're going to look back a little bit in verses 9 and 10, and Peter's going to launch into a plea for our holiness, and Peter's going to talk about our personal holiness, that is, our personal lives before God. We call it our closet lives, right? But Peter's also going to talk about how we have to take that out of the closet and out into the world before all the unbelievers. And then we're going to conclude this section, and Peter's going to conclude it by talking about God's providential purpose what's God's purpose in all of this that we're out there in the world among the Gentiles being witness to them we're going to talk about God's glory so now let's begin with our first section and that is Peter's premise and that's we're going to see that in verse 11 so let me go back and read verse 11 to you beloved I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul So Peter first begins by reminding us who we are on this earth before he's going to make his plea for our holiness. Who we are actually should determine how we act, right? If we truly grasp the significance of what it means to be God's people. Don't think for a moment. Well, just just reflect with me just a moment. What do you think about the Queen of England, right? The Queen of England, when she goes out in public, she knows who she is, right? She knows her heritage. She knows her lineage. She knows the royal family she represents. And so she acts a certain way, right? That's how we should be as Christians. And that's what Peter's. That's why he's reminding us of all these things, who we are uh, before God, so that we act that way out in public. So let's turn back a minute to verses 9 and 10 and let's kind of remind ourselves of who we are. This is 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen generation a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So what are some of those those descriptors of us as God's people? What are some of those phrases that Peter uses that help us understand our lineage, our heritage, and who we are. Chosen, right. I hear that. Great. I'm going to warn everybody in my small group, I know your names, so I'll call on you, right? Okay, Ovi, I see you looking at me. <laughs> yeah. That's right. We were once disobedient, walking according to the world. That's right. We now are the people of God. Who else? Wendell? Mercy, yeah. Good. Another couple. Okay. I told you, Ben and Alex, I see you back in the back row. <laughs> Give me one. What he say about priesthood? Royal priesthood, that's right. He, he, he gave you a lifeline. <laughs> Great. So we're a royal priesthood. So aren't these wonderful descriptors? But as Chris covered last week, where do these come from with respect to describing the people of God? Where do these originate back in the scriptures? Who was called the royal priesthood? Israel. That's right. These were God's special chosen nation. Isn't it wonderful to think, if we look at Romans 11, how we are partakers of that now, right? How God has grafted us the Gentiles, into that tree so that those special ways that God describes the nation Israel now can apply to us as God's special chosen people, a royal priesthood who now serve Him. Let me read to you a few verses from Deuteronomy. I love the book of Deuteronomy. You know, if you haven't read the book of Deuteronomy recently, you should read Deuteronomy. But if you talk about God's character, who God is, how He loves His people, it is so evident In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses writes, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you, And because he would keep the oath, which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. This is just God's electing love. We know that this is just God's electing, choosing love. He loves us. For no reason in and of ourselves, let me read you a few verses from Paul, least we think we are special people, and God should have chosen us too. Paul kind of sets it all straight in First Corinthians chapter one. I'm reading verses 26 through 29, speaking of our election and who we actually are. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in His presence. So again, we're not weak just like the children of Israel. We're not mighty, but we are God's special, chosen people, simply because by His electing love, He set His love on us. Don't you realize, isn't that something to just glory in, that you are a chosen, loved, special treasure of God, and as a believer in Christ, there's nothing you can do to change that. There's nothing you can ever do to make that go away. God's love is faithful. You're bought by the blood of His Son. So, the. Keep that in mind now as we move right into what Peter is going to say in these verses, verse 11. This leads us, in fact, we're going to get to our first word in verse 11, and that is beloved. So this is a really special, important word, the word beloved. It's a wonderful word. Let me just ask you, why would Peter start with this word? By whom are we loved? Who loves us? God. God loves us. And of course, Peter loves his readers. But I think Ovi has hit it the nail on the head. Peter is reminding his readers right off the bat, in light of everything he's just said about them being a special chosen generation, that they are loved of God. And again... That's one of the greatest treasures that we as believers can carry through life. And this is true of believers. If you're not a believer in Christ, you cannot claim this or say this or know this. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are beloved. I love the words of our Lord. And I come back to these many times and think about these. John 16 in the Upper Room Discourse. Jesus really told his disciples this principle of being loved of God. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I shall pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from God. That's a stunning truth. Do you understand what Jesus is saying? He says the Father himself loves you, and what we know from Scripture is that He has loved us from all eternity, not because He saw anything in us. God doesn't learn from history. God plans history. God loved us before the foundation of the world, and love He predestined us. Paul said it too, Romans 5.8, God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It was God's love that sent Christ into the world to die for his elect. It was his love that motivated the plan of redemption and the plan of salvation. So I think this is one of those words that we can't skip over. We just have to sit and kind of meditate over just a little bit. We're loved of God. And that's the way Peter begins with this tender, earnest reminder to believers that they're loved of God. Peter's actually now going to move on to tell us that uh, we may be loved of God, but we don't have a home on this world. In fact, we are homeless in this, on this earth. Uh, our citizenship papers from this world no longer exist, right? Peter's gonna tell his believer, his uh readers that, you know, we had those old citizenship papers, but what did they say? They were full of sins, right? All of our citizenship papers from the old world had all the decrees that were written against us, all of our sins, all of our fleshly desires, all of the things that had offended God, and Christ took them out of the way, nailed them to the cross. We are, in fact, now uprooted out of this world, and that's what Peter's going to remind his readers. Peter describes who we are in this world by terms very familiar to people of God throughout all ages. He's going to call us pilgrims, aliens, strangers, and exiles. So let's go back to the scriptures again. Pilgrims, strangers, aliens, and exiles. Who would that have been characteristic of? Think about the Old Testament. Who can you think of that would have been described as a stranger, a pilgrim, an alien, exiles, Israel that's right and then specific though some of the some of the leaders of Israel who would this who would this have been characteristic of abraham great and who else abraham and we can just go right down the line isaac jacob all the patriarchs right think about i love the story of joseph in egypt right think about genesis 50 what was the last thing joseph commanded those around him to do as he was about ready to die. Take his bones out of this place. (laughs) And Joseph was a ruler in Egypt, wasn't he? I mean, if anybody could have been rooted in this world, if anybody could have had, you know, I'm sunk here and this is my life and I'm climbing up the chain of leadership in, in Egypt, it would have been Joseph. But Joseph said, don't even bury my bones in this place because I'm looking for the promised land. Joseph was a stranger in exile in this land. And that's what Peter's going to tell us we should be. That should be our attitude in this life. It's really summarized well in Hebrews 11, and I think Dusty will probably get there, right, in five or six years, right? Exactly. So anyway, Hebrews 11, verse 13, speaking of all of those people, all of those exiles and all of those people, these all died in faith not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. So Peter's going to come back and call us strangers and pilgrims. In fact, verse 11 now, Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, these are in fact very rich words Peter uses to describe us and he's of course thinking about all of this Old Testament background the history of God's saints throughout all the Old Testament. Let me just talk with let me just give you some of the definitions of these words out of the Greek New Testament because these are really rich words and they'll help you understand exactly what Peter is telling us should be our attitude in this world. So the first word is parakus. it means a stranger an alien, one who lives in a place that is not his home. A stranger or foreigner who lives in a place without citizenship. Isn't that rich? Can't you begin to understand that's who we are as believers? I mean, if you're a believer in Christ, this is a strange place to you. You feel very alien, even though we live in this world. All that we see around us, all the culture is very strange, and we are aliens here. And then the next word he uses is uh, Peripodemos, but it means, this is also another rich descriptor. Listen to this. One who stays for a while in a strange place, sojourning. One who comes from a foreign country into a city or land to reside there beside the natives. Christians who are not at home in this world. So I love Westerns. So there's this great Western, the magnificent seven. It's like the best western ever made, right? And there's that scene, you know that scene, right, where it's you got Yule Brenner, Steve McQueen, and they're taking the Indian to bury him up at Boot Hill, right? And the town doesn't want to bury him and you know, they, they, they take care of the problem. So Yule Brenner looks at Steve McQueen and says, Where are you coming from? And Steve McQueen just says, And Yule Brenner says, So where are you going? I mean, that's kind of us, isn't it, as believers? We're coming from the old world, aren't we? The old man. We were just sucked into this culture. We were just part of it. But no more. We are headed for heaven. We're strangers and exiles. We don't have it. We're in a sense kind of drifters in this world, kind of sojourners in this world. We don't have any roots in this world. And that's how Peter is describing us. Sojourners, pilgrims, and aliens. So let me just ask you... A few a question, if that's true, and we know that's true, how then should we live? To quote the late great Francis Schaeffer, how then should we live in this world? If you're a stranger and alien, and you're not rooted in in this world, how should you look at it? I'm going to let you answer, but let me throw out a couple of suggestions, things I think about, like how do we see events in this world, right? How do we see who's in control of this world? I'm not going to give you any more answers. Ovi, you're smiling at me. That means I'm going to call on you. (laughs) But how does that change your life? How do we look at this world now, thinking through what Peter is saying is, we're not rooted here. Like Joseph, carry my bones out of this place. Yeah, good, Alejandro. We're not attached, right? We're not rooted, right? We see that God is in sovereign control no matter what it looks like. Yeah. Isn't that important now? I mean, our world is turned upside down. We see evil rampant at all levels, right? But we know we're not part of this kingdom anyway. God's going to bring to an end, right? And we have a new heavens, a new earth. That's great. Who else? These are great. Great. And why, Drew? We shouldn't be anxious. And why? That's right. Yeah. Isn't that good? I mean, it's, these are times we can certainly be anxious, right? If you look at your, your retirement accounts and you look at everything going on, you think, wow, am I ever going to be able to retire? You know, I mean, look at the morality in our world. It's just incredible. Look at the persecution going on for people who stand up and preach and teach the Word of God across this across this world. That gives us plenty of reason to be anxious, doesn't it? But we shouldn't be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Oh, these are great. couple more, then we're going to move on. Oh, Chris, you're smiling, but I won't call on you. <laughs> I'm sorry, speak up. Yeah. I heard you say this life is a vapor. That's exactly right. It's just... It's just passing through. That's right. Keeping ourselves unstained from the world. A few more things I had. Clinging to Him for help. Not looking to the world for help in all these circumstances, but our help is in Him. Our help is in the Savior. And proclaim through all of this, proclaiming His excellencies, giving Him praise, rejoicing always, being vigilant in prayer, Faithful in serving. There's nothing that can deter the body of Jesus Christ. We'll be faithful in serving, proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming His excellencies, even in the midst of the worst things. Paul sums it up very, very well, all of this. Philippians 3.20, what a great verse. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our hope too, isn't it? We look at this world, and you know what? The old, I have a birthday this week, and I'm well past 60 now. <laughs> Cemeteries are the most sobering thing in funerals where you can go to, because you realize, unless the Lord returns in our lifetime, we're going to go, right? But that's our hope, isn't it? It is our hope that in life or death, it's Jesus Christ, right? He is our hope, and we wait for that kingdom to be with Him. So, in light of all of these facts, these glorious truths about who we are and our hope, Peter's now going to apply it. He's going to say, now you need to live like it, right? He's going to plea for our holiness. He's going to talk about our personal holiness and our public holiness. First, he's going to talk about our personal holiness. So let's go back and let me reread this verse again. Beloved, I beg you, We're going to come back to that word, beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. I beg you, that's that's the translation of the New King James, the ESV and the NASB say, I urge. And it's all they're all both direct translations of the the Greek word. But that Greek word really means I earnestly urge. Urge you, I plead with you, I implore you. I think this is the tenderness of Peter's heart. This again is that tenderness of the aged apostle who he's seen it all. He's lived many decades, and he's seen believers who've fallen into sin, who've disgraced the name of the Lord, and he's pleading with these believers not to do that. He's actually just pouring his heart out before them because he's seen the the terrible consequences. So, what's his first command? Abstain, right? Abstain from fleshly lusts. What does that mean to abstain? Do not, Do not partake. We're called to say no, right? And sometimes we're called to say more than just no, we're called to flee from sin. Sometimes abstaining is quoting a verse and saying no, but sometimes it is frankly fleeing from sin let's go back to talk about joseph what's the famous story about joseph in the old testament that we should all think about and meditate on when joseph was confronted with sin what was the situation the big one you've got all the answers i'm sure many what was that situation where joseph gave us a great example potiphar's wife that's exactly right genesis 39 uh, 399 Let me read that to you. Joseph quoted to her, he's facing sin, the fleshly lusts and temptations and desires. What's Joseph's response? There is no one greater in this house than I. Joseph was a ruler in Potiphar's house. He had all the power in the world. You know, that's kind of what happens in our world. Powerful people commit a lot of sins and Joseph could have done this, right? Nor has he kept back anything from me but you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? That was Joseph's immediate, heartfelt response. How can I do this and sin against my Lord? It was only Potiphar's wife and Joseph who would have known. But Joseph knew the Lord knew, and he couldn't do this. And what did Joseph do? He left his garment and ran and he ran out of the house. <laughs> so he confronted sin and he ran out of the house. And that's what we have to do sometimes to abstain from sin. We have to learn to run from sin. We have to learn to get rid of the cell phones. We have to learn to get rid of Internet. All the things that, we, that, that draw us back into sin of this world, we have to learn how to put them away from us and run from this. So abstain from what? let's talk about these things, abstain from fleshly lust, And these are words we talk about a lot, right, as Christians and in the New Testament. But what do these things mean? Well, the Greek word for flesh can mean, can be very neutral. In fact, it can mean this, my hands. It can mean normal bodily flesh. It's used in verses like this. The word became flesh. That's our Lord Jesus. It means he just took on human nature, right? Unfallen, unstained, perfect human nature, that's flesh. But also, flesh can mean the fallen, sinful human nature. And that's what it's frequently used of to, to describe us in sin, right? When we've fallen now as sons of Adam. Great example is Romans 7 5. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death so sin flesh sinful passions that's what characterizes the old man that's where we all used to be before we became believers in Jesus Christ right we were locked in that we were enslaved to it that was that flesh the other word and in the contrast to this in fact is walking in the spirit So walking in the Spirit is absolutely the opposite. Galatians 5, the fruits of the Spirit, absolutely the opposite of the fallen human man, what we used to work in, walk in. The next word he uses is lusts or desires. Again, this can be used as just normal desires or cravings when somebody gets hungry, but it's a word that, again, is typically used to relate to Our sinful lusts, our sinful coveting and craving. You can, I gave you some good references there. James 4 2, Romans 7 1. Uh, Peter uses it later in this book. uh, 1 Peter 4 2 and 3. I'll read that to you. That he should no longer live the rest of his life, of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abdominal... I knew I was going to say that. I'm a radiologist. Abdominal. It's abominable, right? Abominable idolatries, right? So that's pretty graphic, right? We don't have to go much for... We understand that. It's the lusts or all those desires we have for sin and they come right out of that human, fallen nature. So this is the problem, and this is why Peter is saying, you have to resist these. You have to say no, because what are those going to do? When those temptations come up, they're going to suck us right back into the world, aren't they? They're going to suck us right back into acting in the ways that we used to act when we weren't believers, right? Acting like the world around us. We can't do that. We can't do the things we used to do as unbelievers now that we are the chosen of God, elect and precious. So, Peter's going to move on and talk about the war. Not only are these things really bad, these fleshly lusts and desires, and are going to draw us back in the world, these are things that war against the soul. Peter is using military language this word for war that he uses literally comes right out of the military language in Greek it can mean to make a military expedition to lead soldiers to war or battle to fight so what's the concept here peter is telling us is sin passive is it just kind of hanging out there no drew you're you're just thank you you're participating with me here <laughs> it's not What is sin doing? It's attacking. Great, Paul. That's great. That's right. It's out. It's not like, you know, we have a lot of copperheads in our yard, right? I don't worry about copperheads because they're kind of passive, right? Unless you basically grab them by the neck and start choking them, you're probably not going to get bit. It's kind of passive, right? That's kind of the way, sadly, I think we look at sin often. I think these are more like the lion in the jungle, right? A grizzly bear, a sow who's been robbed of her cubs, that's sin, right? Sin is after us always. It is always attacking us. It is always there. And if you're not in the battle, you're losing the battle when it comes to sin. It's a warfare. In fact, what's the famous, does anybody know the famous line from John Owen the Puritan about sin? It came out of his his essay on mortification of sin. But what's his famous line about Sin and killing sin. Say it. Yes! Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Isn't that great? That's what Peter's telling us because it's attacking us always. It's always there. If we're not actively in the war, if we're not soldiers of the cross, sin is going to be killing us. It's always there. So I made a handout for you guys because. It's, you see a chart on the last page because I think we can't just pass through this. We need to talk about this just for a moment. And uh, I thought this might be helpful for us to talk about how do we do this? Because the scriptures tell us what are some practical ways that we fight the battle against sin. So on the left-hand side, in fact, I started to bring a book. Speaking of the Puritans, there's a huge, huge tome I have at home by William Ganahl on the Christian and complete armor. It's just over Ephesians 6, 14 through 18. There's a lot that can be said about these verses. But I put on the left-hand side the verses from Ephesians and then Galatians 5, 24 and 25. And then on the right-hand side, I tried to put some application so that we can actually Make these practical and do these things. Let me I'm not going to read them all for the sake of time, but let's look at a couple of these. Um, the first one, Ephesians 6.14, Paul tells us, and you know what, I think Peter would be fine that we're talking about Paul here this morning too, so we're, we're bringing in a little Paul here. Um, Stand therefore having girded your waist with truth. So what is truth? God's Word, right? Pilate asked that question, right? But he didn't know, but it's God's Word. The Lord said this, right? Sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. That's right. So if we're looking at the truth, it's the Word of God. That's going to be a kind of a key theme here if we're fighting the battle. It's the Word of God, right? We have to stand firm on the truth and authority of God's Word as our foundation. What a blessing. We're in a church, a body of believers, a pastor, elders, who are committed to God's Word as the inferent. Inerrant, infallible, inspired Word of God. You know that's the, that's that's the truth of God's Word, and we stand for. You have to stand firm on that. The the next verse, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. That's the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's how we battle. We can go out into this battle against sin because we know our sins have been taken away. If we're truly believers, we know we're going to fail. We're going to fail, right? But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness because of the cross, because of the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we can go out in this battle knowing that if we slip, if we fall, he holds us by his righteousness. Skip down um, Ephesians six seventeen, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Again, the word of God is pretty key in this if you're going to be in the battle. I say that's our commitment. It's our commitment every day. I mean every day. You have to be in the Word of God, right? You have to be in the Word of God, making it such a part of your life. Um, you have to have that commitment, really, to be studying it, to be meditating on it, to be memorizing it. It's why Drew leads us in small groups, in core Scripture verses that we memorize so that it it's for this reason, it's not just to give us busy work, that we can have it there. We can have it as the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Let me move on one more, then we're going we're to go on. Galatians five, twenty-four. it's kind of down at the bottom of the left-hand column. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. What does it mean to crucify that flesh? I say on the right-hand side here, this is just my, my thoughts, Daily putting to death those sins that plague us. We know, we all know, what are those sins that we wrestle with that plague us? Learning how to daily put those to death through Word, the Word of God, prayer, learning how to flee sin like Joseph, learning how to put it away from us and give it no place in our lives. So I think these are the keys. Some of the keys. Meditate on this passage, Ephesians 6. It will help you understand how to actionize the things to go into the war So let's move on. Um, Peter's now going to show us how to take all of these things, our personal holiness, and actionize them into visible godly living in public holiness. In fact, this really reminds me of the words of our Lord. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Matthew 5.16. So if we're doing all of these things, We're living holy, godly, righteous lives. God doesn't want it just in the closet. He wants it out there in the middle of the world. And that's what Peter's going to now command us. Verse 12, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. So this is Peter's plea for our public holiness Conduct, he uses this word conduct. That just means our manner of life, how we live out in the world. What all does that encompass? I think it's everything, isn't it? It's just the way we live. It's it's our marriages. It's the way we behave in school. It's our respect to authorities around us. In fact, it's just how we treat the checker at (laughs) Chick-fil-A when we're waiting in line, right? It's everything. It's our words, our actions, everything. That's our conduct in this world. And don't be deceived. The world is watching. I've had so many instances. I'm a physician. I work with pagan unbelievers. But by God's grace, I try to live out the life of four. I've had them so many times come to me and say, i got this going on in my life. And they just... Because they know I'm a believer. And they know there's no hope in the people around them. You know what I'm saying? They know. They see. They see. Um, But that's our conduct. That's why it's important. He uses this wonderful word, our conduct should be honorable. That word actually can mean morally beautiful. Can you picture that? Isn't that a wonderful word? There's not much. If we look out in society right now, There's not much we'd consider morally beautiful, is there? It's pretty morally ugly, pretty morally wicked and hateful. But this is what Peter is telling us, to have it beautiful. It's just really the opposite of evil. So Peter's going to tell us to live this way, to live as beautiful, moral people out among the Gentiles. And that's just synonymous with being out in the midst of the world. And in fact, Peter is going to be very granular, not in these two verses, but in the verses that follow the rest of this chapter and into chapter 3. He's going to be very specific. He's going to tell us exactly what that morally beautiful conduct should look like. And I've given you these references. Chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, submission to the government and laws. Wow, this is a hard one. Wendell gave me a book yesterday that his son's written on tyranny, on government tyranny, what's going on. We know what's going on with Christians right now who are being persecuted around the world. This is an area where we're going to be called to be salt and light. He's going to be very specific. Our conduct should be morally beautiful. We stand for the truth, but in a morally beautiful way. He's going to talk about servants' submission to masters, wives' submission to husbands, husbands' treatment of their wives. Husbands, were not off the hook. I don't. I, hopefully, I don't have to teach those passages, right? <laughs> Brotherly love in the church. He's going to talk about not retaliating when persecuted. He's going to talk later in chapter 3 about suffering with grace and hope and then about giving a defense of our faith, which we will be called to do. But we have to learn how to do it as a morally beautiful people. So let's go to the final section. The final section now is we're out in the world, we're acting as believers, Peter's going to tell us God's providential purpose for this. Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, listen to this, that when, not if, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe. They're going to see this because you're going to be out in the world, right? Glorify God in the day of visitation. Peter's going to tell us that we need to keep standing in holiness even when there are trials and persecutions. They speak against us. That's the word that just means slander in Greek. That is, they defame you, defame you, call you evildoers. Evildoers, it's synonymous with being immoral people, criminals. Here's a good definition. Peter says in 1 Peter 3.16, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct may be ashamed in Christ. So they're going to tell us as believers, and this was very common in Peter's day, that Christians were accused of being this strange sect of people, and they're immoral. They're in these meetings together, and they're immoral people. In fact, they're just criminals. You know, That's the opposite. That's just slander, right? But Peter is telling them, basically, in commanding us to live holy lives, don't give them even any an inch to make those accusations. Be morally beautiful before them in the world so that when they make these false accusations, they may in fact see our good works. The light of our good works will shine in the darkness. It doesn't matter what they say. If we are living these lives before the world, they're going to see it. They're going to know it. In contrast to their slanderous accusations, the behavior of a Christian in society should be apparent even to Gentile unbelievers. Our actions in this world, how we live, our families, our marriages, respectful attitudes at work, obeying the laws, obeying the government, even on your taxes, (laughs) right? Even when you're driving the speed limits, right? All Meddling here, right? But all those things, they're going to be seen by the world around us, right? If we live our lives in holiness, our testimony will be consistent with good citizens of this world and of the heavenly kingdom. We're created for this. We're created for good works. We're created, Paul said, we're created. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And the final phrase here that Peter has is, for this purpose, one, glorify God in the day of visitation, the glory of God always is the ultimate, right? All of this is for His providence, His glory, His purposes, right? These believers, these unbelievers who are slandering us, that's all part of His providence, right? And God will be glorified. So, this is an interesting phrase in the day of visitation because it may mean, in fact, that these unbelievers will be saved. And many of the conservative evangelical commentators believe that. It's also used in judgment. So, some say that. In the day of visitation means when God comes in judgment. In fact, we can think of Philippians 2, that every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Whether that's in heaven or in hell, all will confess that He is Lord. I put the comment from the MacArthur Study Bible <clears throat> in your handout, and I think it summarizes it very well. Yeah, at least I didn't lose my voice here till the end, right? <laughs> this is a common <clears throat> a common phrase in the Old Testament warning of God's visitation, His drawing near to people or nations in either judgment or blessing. In the New Testament, visitation speaks of redemption. Luke 168, 7:16, 1944. Peter was teaching that when the grace of God visits the heart of an unbeliever, he will respond with saving faith and glorify God because he remembers the testimony of believers he had observed. Those who don't believe will experience the visitation of his wrath and judgment. May it be, may it be, it's always my prayer that when I'm out in the world, that what they hear and see from my lips brings them to Christ. That's the prayer, and we should be praying for them that it brings them to Christ. So just a few conclusions and we're done. First, Christians are called to be holy in this world and let it permeate everything we do. There is nothing that shouldn't be permeated by our holiness, by our redemption and our sanctification. If you are truly a Christian, you will, we talked about this earlier, you don't belong here on this earth, you will long to be home in God's kingdom and you will never feel at home in this world. You live here, we raise our kids, they go to school, You just don't feel home at home here though. We're not part of this culture, right? You will fight the daily battle against sin so that God will receive glory from your life. And Christ will change everything you do in life. He will change everything you do in life. And people will be drawn to Christ through your testimony. So that's it. Any questions, any points of discussion from this morning? I didn't even have to call on James this morning. (laughs) You were hiding back there, right? So... Well, it's a privilege to see you guys and uh, hopefully I'll be back in the cycle again before too long and I enjoy starting to teach and but come visit me at the bookstore too. Oh, wait. Oh, thank you. No equip next Sunday. Okay. Got it. But there will be a bookstore. Well, actually, we won't be here. My wife and I are going to be in Kansas City so somebody will be running the bookstore. So No Sunday school next week. Okay. Oh, that's right. That's right. Well... The Lord bless you. Let me pray for us real quick and we'll close. Lord, these are great words. Teach them to our hearts. Oh, may we live lives that give glory to our Savior who is beautiful Himself. May we live lives that people see and want to know Him and want to ask us how to know Him. God, give us strength in persecution. Give us strength in trials. And build our body here at North Lake Build us in your word and your truth. In Christ's name, amen.